this space for a very long time, um, and is kind of at a philosopher king slash queen is what I like to call. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, having desires and seeing what Bitcoin and what blockchains could be from a very very long time ago. Um, is now the CEO of Shapeshift. Um, and so let's start before we go deeply philosophical. Let's start a little bit on Shapeshift. Can you tell us a little bit about what Shapeshift does, and specifically Shapeshift Prism? Uh, yeah, thanks for having me here. Um, hi, everyone. So, I've been in this world since uh, 2011, and it's very much a, a rabbit hole that I've fallen down. Uh, for three years, a little over three years, I've been building Shapeshift, which is a digital asset exchange. Uh, what makes it unique is that it does not have any user accounts, it does not hold any custody of user funds, um, and it does not touch dirty government money uh, in any way. So we're not an exchange for, for dollars or euros, we're an exchange for uh, honest money, which would mean market-based, crypto, or blockchain-based money. Um, so that's that's my major project. Uh, the company has been growing very fast, and one of our new projects is called Prism. Uh, Rain, who is here, is the lead architect of Prism. And Prism is essentially a way to get exposure to a basket of digital assets uh, in, a, in a trustless way. Um, and we've all been warned about that word, trustless. Uh, what that means in this case is that um, it's not trustless, you're putting trust in code instead of in people. So maybe there's a better word for that, um, but I think that's it's an improvement on the, on the status quo. Many of the applications in this space are trying to move trust away from humans who are fallible uh, to code, which can also be fallible but is also objective and will act exactly as written. Um, so that's yeah, that's great. And that, that gets into some of these thoughts that Nick Sposo has in the space around uh, wet code, and, or wet law and dry law, and, and how some of these new things are kind of moving from this kind of more lawyer kind of, uh, you know, human space towards this kind of dry space. Um, so let's kind of take a step back in that, though, and talk about this big picture here. And thinking about how, what, what blockchains can kind of do to kind of these, the, the power structures within this space. And these are if you think about the world and about middlemen and things like banks and things like governmental institutions, especially think about the government for a second, how do you think about you know blockchain's way to kind of coordinate people and incentivize people around new kind of common goods? Um, it's also a way to kind of you know allow people themselves to kind of create their own money. And those two things, the organizing of people and the creation of money, things classically done by governments. So tell us a little bit about how you see blockchains and governments interacting in the next kind of five to 25 years um, as you look forward to this. Yeah, so first to be historically correct, money is not classically been done by governments. That is a phenomenon uh, only in the last hundred years. Uh, it was also carried out at various points in history by you know, the Roman Empire and things like that. Um, Market-based money has been the norm throughout human history, not, not the exception. Uh, so basically, I got into Bitcoin because uh, I wanted to see a, an honest money. I, uh, I graduated college just before the financial crisis, and I didn't buy at that time. And I saw the financial crisis unfold from abroad, and I, I got very interested in how money worked, and how banking worked. And I came to realize that, uh, that money was really a good, like any other good in an economy, like food or shoes or cars or Xboxes. And like any other good, it should handled, produced, controlled, and all that by the marketplace itself. So um, 
that's that's sort of what my interest has been in this. And if crypto is successful, it will mean uh, a world in which people can transact with each other without censorship. Uh, it will mean a world in which uh, no privileged party can inflate or debase currency. And that's that's what really mattered to me. A lot of people that got involved in this very early. That's fascinating. And so, do you think, kind of, to go a little bit deeper on that, how how do you see it kind of interacting with the power structures, whether banks or governments, or how do you how do you kind of see that um, kind of playing out as we go forward? Well, uh, I think there's going to be a battle. Um, there's going to be a a debate in society about whether people, individuals, have the right to have sovereignty over their own money. Um, and it's hard to go down that path without also getting into arguments about the sovereignty that people have over their own speech and their own behaviors. Uh, so we will have to see um, how big this can get before central banks realize that it's actually an existential threat to their scam. Um, and I, I use that word very intentionally. Uh, they essentially create money out of thin air. Um, everyone is impoverished by it as the price levels rise throughout the economy. And uh, not one person in a thousand really understands that that's going on. Um, my hope is that that will, will go away. But certainly, uh, governments, banks, and the central banks of the world are not going to let that happen easily or peacefully. So it's really incumbent on all of you, uh, on your family, on your friends, and all the people that you know, to understand why this is so important, why people should have uh, sovereignty over their own money. And if that, if that argument can be made eloquently, uh, fast enough, I think Bitcoin cryptocurrency has a chance to actually displace the, the dishonest money that people have been using for the last few years. Talk a lot about in space is uh, this book *Sapiens* and this concept of storytelling within space and like how you can organize lots of people around. There are many ways to organize people. One of those ways is by organizing them around a story. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about what you see is the Bitcoin and the, the blockchain story um, and, and, and how you kind of think that loops back on itself? And like here's the story we're telling. Here's that, how that affects our actions. Yeah, very interesting question. Uh, it's a great book *Sapiens*. Um, Heather. One of the cool things in the Bitcoin story has been its, uh, its founding myth uh, with Satoshi, who is this unknown character um, who created this thing sort of out of nowhere. And um, everything has just been building and unfolding since then. And as all good stories go, the Bitcoin industry and community has had uh, more than its share of drama, um, the good and the bad, you know, everything from the Silk Road, which I would say was, a, was good. Um, it, allowed, it allowed individuals to make decisions with their own bodies. Um, and the bad, things like the Mt. Gox explosion in which $400 million dollars of customer bodies were lost. Uh, and dozens of other different pieces along, along this area. And I, I think, um, you know, I don't know when the, when the history of Bitcoin will be written, um, but it's going to be a very fascinating tale. For those of us who have gotten involved in it, it's not, it's not this cold 
blockchain technology that we just kind of tinker with. It is a very human story, uh, and it, it has to be. It is, it is, it is challenging something that is, that is fundamental to how we operate. We use money all the time, um, and so Bitcoin cannot grow and change things without that becoming necessarily a very human story. Yeah, like that. Um, and so thinking more about that story piece and how if, if the story, one of the stories that we're telling here is, you know, the, taking this underlying concept of money that we've been around. I even, as you said, I kind of messed it up. I was like, oh, in the bank, they're going to the government and they hear money forever. Well, that's it. That's true. But think about it from like this one level above, thinking about, you know, how technology, and we've been talking about today lunch about how the technology that we're making, I think about like Conway's law here, which says the technology that you're making affects you and it is replicable of your structure, and your structure is replicated within technology. How do you think, like, how do you think about this tech and society loop that's happening, specifically in the blockchain space, or the things that we're building, and how that kind of affects the way that we're thinking about the things that we're building? Hmm. Well, probably a really good analogy is to use the, the development and um, emergence of the internet itself, and how the world went from um, tools in which you could not broadcast information or receive information between any two people instantly without censorship uh, years or cost. And how, when that came about, it, it fundamentally changed uh, how people communicate. It didn't just mean that instead of a paper letter, you would now write an email. That was only the very first step. It actually changed how we, how we talk to each other. Uh, podcasts, Twitter, social networks. These things did not have an analog before the internet. Uh, so it's changed human society. Crypto, blockchain, Bitcoin uh, will have a very similar effect. Now, instead of moving information anywhere freely without censorship at near zero cost, you can move value anywhere instantly at near zero cost without censorship. And this will allow people to um, not only do the things that they did before, like send a bank wire to a friend or a business um, in a digital and faster way. That's kind of the most boring outcome of this. The really interesting are the new economic ways that people will interact with each other. And um, those haven't really been, been known yet, just like in 1993, no one really understood what Facebook would be or why it would be uh, in the early days of crypto. We don't yet know how this technology will actually change our economic um, behaviors, but that will be very exciting to watch. Yeah. yeah, I think when we start to reduce the friction, you know, the internet reduces the friction on copying information and distributing it, and then now reducing the friction on distributing and receiving, saying receiving value. Something that people talk a lot about in the crypto space is how things feel like they may be going faster. So like uh, people talk about exponential rates of technology and how kind of that convergence of machine learning and VR and AR and biotechnology and what have you. And you have also blockchain that's also kind of at a root level decreasing the transaction costs for transactions. Do you see like society becoming more exponential, or do you see, how do you think about like the time aspect here, acceleration versus jerking? Yeah, well, I guess that, that will lead into a discussion of singularities and things like that, which are interrelated. You don't need to go down, but you want but, to. Uh, I, I won't go down that path, because I think that's inevitable. But um, a good example of what you're talking about in the crypto world would be ICOs um, and what they have done to accelerate the financing of projects. <coughs> so, pre-ICO, 
And an ICO, for those of you who don't know, is a, a name for an initial coin offering when the project gets started and it releases a token that represents some kind of benefit in that product. Um, basically, before that, we have these kind of traditional ways of raising money. You can raise some from friends or family or angel investors or VCs. That can take a few years. If you get big, you do larger VC rounds and maybe an IPO at some point. And over a decade, you can raise a lot of money. Um, with tokens, uh, you can raise a lot of money in two months, and all the good and bad goes with that. So that's, um, I think, a really good, really good way to understand this stuff. That by reducing the friction of economic exchange, you actually accelerate all the economic exchange that's happening. Um, the inverse of that is that any government or bank policy that slows down economic exchange is not just an annoyance is actually slowing down the, the march of humanity. It's actually slowing down the development of society. And uh, if it's slow because the tools don't exist, that's one thing. If it's slow because of arbitrary rules that certain people have imposed on others by force, that's not just an annoyance. I think that's intensely unethical. And that is essentially what the joke's trying to break. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that the it's you're a, you're a person that's treating something more slowly as a kind of just imposing that that could be a bad thing. Do you think though that like I want to push on this a little bit more and, and ask the question like do you think that we're going too fast? Do you think that like would you get into some kind of like slow coin where people are incentivized to move you know less you know less quickly or you know and I think about it from also like the anti-fragility kind of to leave perspective around hey if you're going fast you're, you might not be that resilient you might not be as anti-fragile as you'd like to be. How, how do you think about the, the speed and the desire for some of this stuff? Great question. So, I, I don't presume to know enough about how money should be designed or how economic systems should be designed. I think they are, they are chaotic, um, complex systems that, that no one really is smart enough to fully understand or control. Uh, so, in the crypto world, now that all this stuff can be experimented with openly, people can try it. Transactions moving too fast, is that a bad problem? Come out with a slow point, see if the market accepts it, and see if there's actually a, a use case for it. Uh, crypto has allowed competition in a whole new realm of, uh, of emergent behavior that, that couldn't exist before. So if you have an idea to slow things down, you now have the ability to propose it to everyone else, whereas before that could never be tried. Yeah, I think that that's a good answer for me generally. It's like, hey, I'm into you know self-sovereign X, and if you want to go try something, please go for it. You know, and the market will determine if there's value in that, if there's not value in that. Um, so I think that it is, yeah, it's, it's a good it allows marketization of ideas and things within this new land. Tell us kind of talking more about the ICO side here and and the the concept of the bubble in this space. How do you think about um, the bubbles that the space has gone through thus far? How do you think about where we are right now in time? And how do you think about like, the future of, of bubbles going forward? Uh, so, bubbles that have gotten scare people, and they think that they are wrong, or um, that they have to be avoided, or that they are a symptom of, uh, of a failure of Bitcoin design. Um, I think they are they are natural parts of markets, especially markets that have very binary outcomes. So, in, in the Bitcoin world, Bitcoin could totally take over the world and become the money that everyone uses 20 years from now. That, that may have a small chance of happening, or a big chance, but it absolutely can happen. 
things could fall apart and go to zero. Right? So if you have both of those as realistic outcomes, what the hell is the value of the victory today? Um, it's really hard to know that. And I think we've seen many bubbles in the Bitcoin uh, emergence, you know, four or five big ones, probably leading to another, another one now. And that's okay. Uh, if you don't like bubbles, don't, don't own it. Don't get scared when it falls. Don't get scared when it rises. So talking about that, that example there of money, decentralization of money, I love this analogy of um, you know, quantitative easing, which is essentially the government up top producing lots of money um, and then kind of distributing in various ways into the ecosystem. You can imagine the flip of that, which is individuals, and, and there's a project like this called Circles, yeah, it's a, it's a universal, have you, you know Circles? You heard of Circles? It's a, it's a universal basic income implementation where you go in a bottom-up way where people can essentially inject themselves with money trust networks to give exchange that money with others. Um, is that kind of what the kinds of things do you, do you see going forward in the future? Kind of, you know, Reese coin or Air coin or, you know, community coin. How do you, where do you see the money decentralization going? Is it, what level of granularity does it end up going towards? I think the right answer for that is that I don't know. Um, <laughs> again, I don't know how to design the economy or, or how money should work. 
I would imagine that the world is not we need a thousand different monies. Because uh, money is essentially just a, a unit of measurement. So in the same way we don't need a thousand ways to measure distance, we don't need a thousand ways to measure money. Um, but there are lots of tokens and lots of crypto assets that are not not monies that are uh, in different kinds of use cases or different forms of value. So the number of tokens could be infinite, but I don't imagine the number of and I think that that's a good distinguishing thing. There's the tokens versus the cryptocurrencies, and there's stuff on like the token side, like you know, tokenizing all the memes in the world as a way to kind of, you know, you have Dogecoin, or you have like Rare Cafe or Sun, you have a whole bunch of other memes that could exist that might be different than how people you know, exchange uh, value. So, as we think, and, and kind of starting to get into pseudo-value mode, how do you think about, you know, the, I'm, a, I'm a metrics kind of person, so metrics that we all in the station be thinking of um, when we think about this new reality that we're trying to create. What are for your kind of like the, the key performance indicators or the KPIs of this new world? How should we measure our, our new world? Technology has done some measuring decentralization stuff. Um, yeah, how do you think about the things that we should be measuring as a way to determine the process? Two, if you could define it all into two like uh, the two most important would be the, the market capitalization of all digital assets combined is a really important one. Um, and the transactional the transactional quantity per day of all blockchain assets combined. Um, and then the third would be the exchange volume of all digital assets combined per day. Those three things categorize or encapsulate um, the success and growth they're not perfect. They can deceive you on the short term, but over the long term, those will be the things that people should watch. And over the long term, they have demonstrated, I think, one of the most profound growths in technology that has ever existed. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I think so. As you said, it's the market cap of all of the currencies, the transaction, the amount of transaction volume per day, or what have you, and the in, 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 in terms of actually using the in, in the exchange between different kinds of currencies. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so now thinking, I mean, so in a final note here, you know, what, what's just kind of on your mind right now from the space? This can be a non-secular, it can be, you know, whatever you're thinking about, either from a philosophical perspective, from a shapeshift perspective, um, you have a, an audience that is listening to you speak. What, what's on your mind and what, what would you have to do to find a note um, Okay, so the, in 2011, the first Bitcoin conference that ever happened was in New York City. And um, I went to it, and I was amazed that it was that there were real people that came out of the internet to meet <laughs> And uh, the number of people was was like half of the size of the room, and that was kind of everyone in the world who bothered to come out and to learn about Bitcoin. And uh, that was only six six years ago. That was August of 2011. Um, Every financial institution in the world is now investing in this technology. There are tens of millions of people that are using this all over the world. It's worth over $100 billion collectively, and it is driving a lot of um, very important people to be both very excited and very crazy. So I would, I would like to just take a moment for myself to recognize that growth, because it's very exciting to actually see that and to see like those dreams that happened six years ago 
coming to fruition. Uh, and to just thank you all for being interested in this stuff and for all the work and projects that you've all done uh, to make that. Great. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Eric.